We come this morning to continue our discussion of the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is a far better priest than Aaron, and the oath entails all the perfections of Christ as our high priest. By that oath, Christ was made the surety of a better covenant of salvation, the new covenant. Christ alone bears all the cost as our priest in the place of the beneficiaries, we who are poor lost people. God's oath to Christ assured us that Christ would stand good for the terms of this better new covenant by which we are saved from all our sins. Christ is also our permanent intercessor before God. His intercession never ceases. It's not a mere one-off intercession, but continues forever because Christ was sworn by God to be our priest forever. Christ is very suitable to us as our high priest because He is immaculate, completely without fault, without sin, without spot, without blemish. He is completely innocent of any harm to anybody. Though He was numbered with the transgressors, yet He is separate from sinners. He lived with and ate with sinners, talked with sinners, preached to sinners, healed sinners, proclaimed the gospel to sinners. He bore the sins of many sinners, and yet He never sinned, and He never became a sinner. In all these ways, Christ is a high priest far exalted over, far better than the priests of Aaron. Another superiority of Christ is that He is exalted higher than the heavens. He sits in the very presence of His Father in glory, interceding for His people. Jesus is perfect and exalted in His intercession for His people and ceaseless and never exhausted by it. Because of all that, Hebrews next points out that Jesus never has to make a sacrifice for His own sin, for He has none. But the priests of Aaron were sinners and had to make a sacrifice for their own sins before they could offer up a sacrifice for the people. It is in the last half of Hebrews chapter 7 at verse 27 that the penny finally drops and the ultimate purpose of Christ's being our great high priest is disclosed. No doubt the Jewish believers understood somehow that Jesus had died to save them, but what does any of that have to do with a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? The writer of Hebrews slams the truth down on the table in one short clause. Christ offered a one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins when He offered up Himself. This is the very first mention in Hebrews of Christ being our sacrifice. It was previously said that He purged our sins by Himself, that He took on our humanity so that He might taste death for us all, that He died to destroy the power of the devil and deliver us from death itself, and that He cried strong tears to God who could deliver Him from death. But now finally, Hebrews declares that Jesus is Himself our offering for our sin. Christ is the high priest that provided the perfect Lamb Himself. When no other animal offering could save us, our Lord Jesus delivered up Himself as our offering. God's wrath against our sin was exhausted on the Lamb of God at Calvary, and all our sins were taken away by Jesus. It had been foretold long before that somehow God would make satisfaction for our crimes Himself. 
It happened when Isaac asked his father Abraham, here is the wood, here is the fire, but where is the lamb for the offering? Abraham's response is both heart-rending and majestic. God will provide himself a lamb for a sacrifice. And so finally we can understand the glorious point of Christ being made our great high priest by a solemn oath of God to him. That priesthood entailed the requirement that Jesus present a suitable offering for the saving of his people. And that suitable offering is the body and blood of Christ himself. One other distinction, Aaron wore beautiful garments when he made offerings for the people's sins, but not so our Lord Jesus. Jesus was stripped naked and strung up in shame as he sacrificed himself for our crimes. No wonder Hebrews assures us that the solemn oath of God to Christ, making him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, is our exceeding comfort and consolation. Well, this morning we continue in the text after all of that is laid out, which he did once when he offered up himself, the writer says, and then he says in verse 28, for the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which will since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. And that, of course, is the problem, isn't it? But how could the law do otherwise? Because all men have sinned. We all have infirmities. Therefore, the law could not appoint anyone, an offspring of Adam and his fall into sin, the law couldn't appoint anyone who wouldn't have an infirmity. And it raises the question, how can any priest represent the people to God when he's just like they are? And this, of course, is what the false priests of this world have forever sought to separate themselves from, to distinguish themselves from, to create an aura and appearance as if they are not like the people that they represent as priests, but they're somehow different. And so they wear special clothes and they, in some cultures they paint their faces and put on silly hats with horns and the shaman look that we've seen in the news in the last couple of years. They're so different and apart from the people whom they serve as priests that somehow the people are supposed to forget that those priests are just like they are, just as messed up as they are, just as much failures as they are, just as much sinners as they are. And we see the same thing in the exaltation of many of the popular preachers in this world. They wear big gold pinky rings and gold Rolex watches and dressed in those multi-thousand dollar suits and buy themselves jets and run around and sit in gold leafed furniture and look all regal and and separate from their people. And the people love it, don't they? At least some of them do. They follow after those people while there's a cult develops, isn't there? But the main infirmity, of course, of all these priests is that they all die like the rest of us and have no 
power over death and can't raise themselves from the dead, although some of them claim they will. And some of their idiotic followers protest that they did rise from the dead, don't they? You've still got some Lubavitcher Jewish people who claim that the rabbi is raised from the dead. Some of them are ready to proclaim him the Messiah. So much of the inferiority of Aaron's priesthood, if not to say all of the inferiority of Aaron's priesthood, comes from Aaron's being a sinner. And the law that he mediated or that he was the intercessor for couldn't make Aaron not a sinner, could it? Because nobody can keep the law, including Aaron, including the priesthood. None of them can keep the law. So in the end, you see they succumb to the judgment of the law just like all their people do. They don't have a sacrifice that can take away sin. There is a woe that must be preached to those who preach law-keeping for righteousness. You see, Aaron's inferiority, in many ways, this text, Hebrews 7.28, is a rebuke to the idea of righteousness by law-keeping. If you've been dedicated to the service of the Lord and you've been given privilege and you've been called out by the law of Moses, by God's law given to Moses to be the priest, and you're surrounded with all that religious activity and all those sacrifices, and in the presence of the tabernacle and the temple and nearby the glory of God. Why, if you can't keep the law for righteousness, then what hope is there for any of your parishioners to keep the law for righteousness? There is no hope there because the priest that's appointed by the law, has an infirmity. They all do. The law makes men high priests which have infirmity. How could it do otherwise? But the word of the oath, the writer goes on, the word of the oath, that is that solemn oath that God made to Christ, which was since the law, that is it was apart from the law, outside the law, and was articulated in God's word after the law was written down in Psalm 110, as we know, was written hundreds and hundreds of years after the Ten Commandments were given. The word of the oath, of God's oath to Christ, which was since the law, makes the Son consecrated forevermore. So there is the Aaronic priesthood appointed by the law, all of whom have an infirmity and can't carry out ultimately the purpose of their priesthood. But the word of the oath, which is God's oath to Christ, that he should be forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he is in fact the Son, God the Son. And already in Hebrews has been established that he is God of very God. He is equated with God. God equates Messiah with God. He is the second person of the Trinity clothed in our humanity at the Incarnation. The oath of God makes that man, the Son of God, consecrated forever to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews is pointing out to these Jewish believers that whatever the law did in appointing a priest, it appointed a flawed, sinful man with limitations 
with infirmities who ultimately would die of his sin just like they all do. But the oath of God, which was outside the law of Moses, appointed God the Son, God manifest in the flesh, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as the writer of Hebrews has already demonstrated, this man is without any sin or flaw or infirmity at all. And he's been going through a comparison of Christ with Aaron to prove by many factual observations that Christ is superior to Aaron, that he's without sin, that he lives forever, that he intercedes for his people forever. Therefore, he is able to save us to the uttermost, that he's impeccable, he's innocent, he's separate from sinners in the sense that he never participates in sin, though he loves his people who are sinners. And He speaks to them and He heals them and He saves them and He intercedes for them. He is a priest forever. He ever lives to make intercession. But you see, if you go back to the law for justification, then you'll perforce have to go back to a flawed, failed priest, won't you? This is, of course, the main thrust of the whole book of Hebrews. Don't go back to the law for righteousness. Of course, it'll never get you righteousness, but you'll also be saddled again with a flawed priest, a priest with limitations, a priest that sins, a priest that dies, a priest that can't see through to the end his work of interceding on behalf of you. You will perforce have a flawed, failed priest if you do that. But under God's oath to Christ, we have an everlasting priest with no flaw who never fails. And he's the Son of God, God incarnate in our humanity. This is what the writer here is underlining by way of summary in Hebrews 7 at verse 28. Now, other priests appointed by other laws suffer all the same flaws and failure but even worse, don't they? You think about pagan cultures that have primitive, we wouldn't even want to call them laws, we'd just call them traditions, cultural systems that they operate in, and they appoint the witch doctors and the the priests who offer blood sacrifices many times, human sacrifices, often of children. They have the same flaws and the same failures, and they cannot make a sacrifice that can save anybody. But more to the point and more of a threat in our society are the churches that make laws appointing priests. You remember that the Mormon church appoints priests in its worship and they don't even believe that God is the true God. He's just one of the gods that was born from an infinite regress of gods and Christ was born of that God and He's the brother of Satan and we can all become gods one day and then we can have gods that follow after us and it's a completely pagan religion. But they have church law and they appoint priests and you know what they call them? They call them priests after the order of Melchizedek. What blasphemy. But we think mostly of the Roman Catholic system. It appoints priests with sin with failure, with weakness, doesn't it? 
We have observed this in the press, haven't we? That the Roman Catholic system is very careful to cover up the crimes of its priests by moving them from one place to another. We had that happen in our own community where a priest, so-called, was molesting young boys. They just shuffled him off to another location and gave him some administrative work to do and managed to keep it hushed up by paying off the victims, small potatoes, for almost two decades. No wonder the Roman Catholic priesthood is shot through and through with pedophiles. Because, see, everyone's a sinner, and many people fall to the basest of crimes. But according to these church laws, the priests are supposed to be better than that. They're counted on to be better than that. They must be better than that. They've been consecrated. They wear beautiful vestments. They have the imprimatur of the church hierarchy, don't they, which goes all the way back to the apostles, to the apostle Peter, supposedly. So they can't have weaknesses and failures. And if they do have weaknesses, they're always lovable weaknesses, aren't they? Why he maybe drinks a little too much on Friday nights, but you know that just makes him more like us, and it makes us feel so much better, doesn't it? But I mean, on Sunday he's raring to go. You know, he's in good form again. The reason that the priesthood is shot through with pedophiles, there are a number of reasons for it, but basically it's because their priests are sinners, and no amount of hocus-pocus and hodgepodge and consecration and all that elaborate ritual can take that fundamental failure from them when the church law ordains them as priests. And plus, in the Roman Catholic system, because those fake, false human priests have been blasphemously assigned the duties and prerogatives and powers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only high priest, why, they think they can forgive sin. They think they can offer a propitiatory sacrifice at the Mass, don't they? And they think they can restore justification to a sinner through confession, absolution, penance, and the workings of the Mass and the other rituals that they administer to their parishioners. They have so transferred the work of Christ, which only Christ can do, because only Christ is sinless, only Christ is God, manifest in the flesh, only Christ made a sacrifice that takes away sin, only Christ rose from the dead and can raise up His people from the dead when it comes time, because they've transferred so much of Christ's duties to the priesthood. You see, they're worse than the priesthood of Aaron. Worse than the priesthood of Aaron because of what they've invested in their so-called priests. And they are loath to defrock a priest because it has such cataclysmic consequences on the sacraments that they offered and on the works that they did and the absolutions and the whole church split back in the 400s over this very thing. Well, what if the priests are corrupt? And if... We have this sacramental system or sacerdotal system where the priests stand in the place of Christ and they offer the sacrifices and they 
absolve sin, and they justify little babies by baptizing them. Why, if they turn out to be criminals and crooks and scoundrels and heretics, what happens? Well, some people, at least they were consistent, the Donatists said, well, in that case, all that stuff is null and void that they did, isn't it? But obviously the hierarchy realized that if they followed down that road, their whole system would collapse, wouldn't they? Why, they'd just have to go back to Jesus being the high priest, and that wouldn't do. And they call their priests, priests after the order of Melchizedek. And since Melchizedek was forever a priest, then they have to be forever priests too. And therefore, to defrock a Roman Catholic priest you know, takes an act of the Pope or whatever you might say. This is part of the reason, a large part of the reason, why their priesthood is so corrupt. In Israel's day, the priesthood became corrupt on a number of occasions, and there was really nothing that could be done about it without God striking them dead, which He did on several occasions. So it got to the point when Christ was put to death that they had a high priest who was a murderer, a blasphemer, and one who participated in conspiracy to kill Christ. You know, for the good of the people and for the good of the nation, of course. But it reminds us of other places in civil law where horrible priests have been appointed. You think of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin every time his name is mentioned. God puts that little suffix on his name. I'm surprised there's not an abbreviation for it. But you remember, he had to institute illegal fake priests when he separated the northern tribes of Israel from Judah and didn't want them to go back to Jerusalem to worship because their hearts would be there and they wouldn't follow after him. So he made him some golden calves and built him some altars and appointed himself a line of bogus priests who led the people further astray in idolatry and against the commandment of God. Or we could think of the priests of Baal found throughout the Old Testament, especially during Ahab's reign. And you remember Elijah had that big meeting with the high priests of Baal and they couldn't bring down fire on the altar, but he prayed to God and God sent fire and consumed his sacrifice and the rocks and the water that he had drenched the whole thing with. And then they went and slew 450 prophets of Baal. But did the people... Learn their lesson? Absolutely not. They just go and appoint some more. Even in our society, of course, we have some pastors are so prominent and so influential that they get treated as priests, even though they are corrupt and sinful, and oftentimes the sin comes out. A lot of times it doesn't. This is the problem with having any priest other than the Lord Jesus Christ, is that no matter how you appoint them, no matter what your intentions are, no matter what kind of glorious hierarchy has been constructed to justify it, no matter how popular, famous, rich, golden-tongued they are, nevertheless, they are priests who have faults. They are priests who are defective and cannot carry out the priesthood that we need, which is the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek, a priesthood 
that never ends, that is carried out perfectly, that is glorious in the sense of the glory of God in the very halls of heaven where our priest is situated and therefore is a priesthood that is most appropriate to. You remember it said that the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was something that behooved us. It was appropriate. It was proper for us. Nay, it was needful. It was necessary for us, was it not? Well, we could move on, I guess, into Hebrews chapter 8 where the writer begins, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. This is the description of our Lord Jesus. Christ is appointed by God directly, not by the law, not by a process of inheritance and the Father passing on to the Son an appointment that was made, but rather is the appointment of God directly by an oath, a permanent oath to Christ directly, thou shalt be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out here is that Christ fulfills the type and shadow of the Old Testament priesthood. He's a better priest operating in a better tabernacle in glory, one pitched by God and not by man. And I'm sure that one day when we see Him in His glory and beauty, and we see the appointments of where He is seated, and we will realize that it makes all of the glorious buildings and temples and cathedrals shabby by comparison. It'll be like we go to some backward people group and we see their their temple and it's got dirt floors and it's it's shabby looking compared to what even we have constructed out of our own hubris and pride, no doubt. But one day when we see Christ in His glory, it'll be a breathtaking moment. It'll shock us in a glorious and happy way. And the Lord Jesus was given that high and lofty position that He is appointed to it just goes to show us how considerate and how loving He is and He was to come down into this world in the time and place that He did and to be with His poor people whom He loves and to condescend in our weakness and frailty and backwardness and poverty compared to what He came from. Remember Paul said that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. And now he is seated again in heavenly places. But we know that he knows what we experience in this life. For he experienced it himself, you see, personally. Not just the knowledge of God who knows everything, but the knowledge of the God-man who experienced what we experience and who lived for a time like we live. He knows our condition. He knows our troubles. He knows our trials. He knows our temptations. He knows the limitations of our means. 
even the means of the richest of us, even the means of the most powerful of us, the Lord Jesus knows that those things are far, far below what he was always entitled to. And yet he submitted himself to it for our sake so that he might make a sacrifice for us. Now next Lord's Day, I hope to get into the superiority of his sacrifice as it's related to the superiority of the covenant that he shed his blood to execute. And we'll talk about the fact that covenants were executed between God and man by a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And the Lord Jesus, as He said the night He was betrayed, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. And we'll talk about what did the blood of the old covenant accomplish versus the glorious majesty of what the blood of the new covenant, that is the blood of Jesus, shed on the cross, what did it establish, what did it accomplish under the new covenant. But as we come to the Lord's table, we recognize that it pictures that body of Jesus which was torn and riven for us as a sacrifice like the body of a little lamb that was slain and then burnt up on the altar. And the blood that the Lord Jesus shed like the blood that poured out from the lamb's throat that was cut to make an atonement for the sin of the people. And how superior is the blood of Christ that it's shed for the remission of sin. Now there are a lot of heretics who I've interacted with, sad to say, who believe that the blood of the Lord Jesus shed on Calvary's tree does not forgive sins. Oh, they have a long elaborate structure of things that it does, but it doesn't do that. Because they think that that would make God a, a cruel, mean, vindictive God. That God can just forgive sins anytime He wants to. He doesn't need a blood sacrifice. He doesn't need the blood of Jesus to take away sin. But this is blasphemous heresy. This Lord's table that the Lord Jesus instituted, He specifically stated that His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so every time we partake of the Lord's table and we eat this bread and drink this cup, we should be reminded of the means by which our Lord Jesus took away our sins and forgave them. It was by His dying on the tree and the shedding of His blood. And we don't receive forgiveness of sins by taking the Lord's table but we rejoice in the forgiveness of sins that we have if we've trusted in Jesus because of the shedding of His blood and the rendering of His body as a sacrifice in our place. Well, let's give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in the fact that You ordained our Lord Jesus. You made Him our high priest by an oath from which you will not repent, that He is our priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we thank You that He gave a better sacrifice that is of Himself than all the sacrifices that any other priest under any other system known to man could ever have made. A sacrifice that was nobler and richer and better and morally perfect 
and clean and acceptable in your sight in the place of your people whom you would redeem. And we thank you that his body was torn for us on Calvary's tree and that he bore those thorns upon his brow and that he took the lash of the whip and the nails through his hands and through his feet and the spear in his side and the destruction of his heart and lungs in the dying that he died to save poor sinners, to save us. We thank you that he left us this feast to remind us for he knew that he would rise again and the next time his people partook of this feast it would be in celebration of their risen Savior. And even so today we celebrate our risen Savior by these symbols that remind us of what he did for us when he died to redeem us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread, He blessed it, He broke it, and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 20 in the black book. Number 20. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise the glories of my God and King, the triumph of His grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Number 20. <laughs> 